do you just need a human hand sometimes? That's what it takes. All right. Okay. Let's, let's pause for a word of prayer before we get started into this, and, and I'll expound a little on what we're going to do on Sunday evenings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for your truth, and Lord, I thank you that you are the great God who, Lord, loves us, that cares about us, that has given us your revealed word so that we would know about you. And we thank you, Lord, that we can look to your scriptures. And Lord, as we study tonight the the last book of your revealed word, help us to see that all scripture is important, all scripture is profitable. And Lord, help us to be a people that rejoice in each and every book of the Bible because we know it's from you. So Lord, as we get into this study this evening, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us, uh, help me as the speaker. Lord, I don't want to tackle this subject from an academic point of view, but I want to tackle it as any other book of the Bible. And Lord, help it to be a help and an application to us today. And Lord, that we might be thrilled with what we read and we might be blessed by what we uh, read and see in this book of end times. So Lord, I do pray that you would help us uh, in, and be with us. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to do on Sunday nights is embark, as it says up there, and, and, and we're going to have a look through and go through the book of Revelation. And, um, you know, I was toying where we, where we wanted to go, and, and Sunday nights we are doing something a little different. It, it's more uh, a study than, than Sunday mornings because... I wanted to get that balance rather than, than do same, same. I wanted to get the balance. On Wednesday nights, it's more interactive, whereas this is more expositional and expository from, from, from me to you. And we're going to have a look through the book of Revelation. And, and I know that there's already people in here, as soon as I've mentioned this, are going, oh, no, not that. Not that crazy conspiracy, uh, Looney Tune, tinfoil on the head, you know, everything's a mark of the beast. It's all... But, but that's a tool of Satan. It's a tool of Satan. Because this is one of the most neglected books. But it's one of the most important books. And, and you know, Satan is uh, absolutely against this. And, and here's the thing. You know, uh, he wants to discredit the book of Genesis. And he wants us to neglect the book of Revelation. And then he takes the beginning and he takes the end away. And then it's all open to anything and we can fill in what we want. You know, if you were to read any book and you were to take away the entire introduction or the context and then the entire end of it, you could really make of that story what you will and take it where you want it to go and begin it where you want to begin it. And that's what the devil wants to do. And what happens then is that the book of Revelation is, is neglected. It's not taught in churches. And churches that do believe that these, these events are yet future don't really go near it because that's a Bible study thing. It's not for a Sunday. It's not for an expositional thing. But it is the Word of God. And, and how dare we decide what parts of the Word of God are good for the people of God and what parts Parts have to be kept and select and hid away for a certain little academic crew that maybe know a little more about prophecy. And because of that, this book has been neglected. It has been abused by some as well. It hasn't been taught well because we miss application because all scripture has application and we have to drive it. And so the, that's why I want to go through it and, and, and just see uh, what an amazing book this is. If you can flick the next slide on for me. And, and here's because here's, this is what I'm all about. This is what I believe local church should be about. And, and you see my little pyramid there, my little triangle? 
If you can read the bottom two blocks of that, this is the foundation of, of local church, I believe. Ecclesiology, which is just a study of the church, how the church is to function, how the body of Christ is to be, who we are, what we're called to, our purpose. Eschatology, I believe, is foundational with that. Because eschatology tells us about end times. It also helps us with Israel and the church and seeing the different programs of God. And that is essential for our understanding of the body of Christ. It's essential. So those two are foundational, I think. They're together. You know, you want to study the church, you have to study eschatology. Because then you see where the church fits in in end times. There you see where Israel fits in in end times. And as you put them together, that helps you understand the purpose of the church in the church age, is what we've been teaching on Sunday evenings. And I think that's foundational understanding for the top thing, the most important thing, which is evangelism. This is the three E's of the local church. I absolutely believe this. Because if you do not have your ecclesiology correct, your understanding of the church, and if you do not have your eschatology correct, your evangelism isn't going to be correct. It's just not. So, you know, um, we think about Calvinism and all that it teaches. And, 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 and Calvinists, when you boil down to it, really and truly, they believe that God chooses some for salvation. The Calvinists will say you're being simplistic there. But that's the reality of what they teach. So the truth of that is, what is evangelism then? But if you understand ecclesiology, you understand the church. And as part of that, you can understand how we're saved into the body of Christ. And if you understand eschatology, that actually uh, God has a specific program for the church in this age, and how we're to be about it, and what we're to do, and that Israel hasn't been replaced but actually is going to be dealt with by God. And, and we have a, a thing to do. We have a purpose now and an urgency about our purpose because eschatology, the study of the end times, and we'll see this as we go, will help us to understand that the Lord could return at any time, at any moment for his church. And we're not to be asleep. We're to be about the work of evangelism. But if we don't have our eschatology in place, where's our urgency? And if our urgency isn't there, where's our fervor for evangelism? It can wait till tomorrow. Or, you know, God, if you're a Calvinist, well, actually, God's going to, has chosen who he's saved anyway. And what have we got to do with it anyway? And, and God will save whom he chooses. And that's the end of it. And all becomes muddy. But if you have your understanding of the church, ecclesiology, understanding of the end times, God's program through the ages, then your evangelism is going to be correct. And that's what we want to be as a church. We just don't want to teach eschatology so that we can sit and build a bunker and wait for the Lord to return. That's not what it's about. That's not what this book is about. It's there to give us a view of what God is going to do, but help us to be reminded that he could come for his church at any time. And while we're here, we are to be about his business according to the fact that the Lord could return at any time. And once he takes the church out of this world, then things are going to change and, and the great tribulation is coming. God is going to deal with this world and the wrath of God is going to be poured out. So to take the book of Revelation and just to throw it away in a corner and say, that's for crazy people or that's for people that you know, love to study the Bible, but it's not for the church body, is, 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 is absolutely robbing us of a blessing. It's robbing us of a blessing. Uh, put the next slide up for me. 
Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter number 1, verse 3. Revelation chapter number 1, verse 3. Notice what the word of God says. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Now we'll have a look at that verse a little bit later on. But this is one of seven blessings that are found in the book of Revelation. Seven blessings are found in here. And this is the first one, and this is for us. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. Blessed. There's a blessing in unpacking this book. There's a blessing to be had. And those that don't go near it are missing the blessing. They're missing the blessing. And you get through the, the, the book and you'll see this and we'll get to this as we go through. There are another six times where there's a specific blessing uh, registered in this book. And maybe you can have a look at that in your own time. Do a little bit of study, but we will get to it. So, you know, here again we see that this, the enemy has done a tremendous job of getting this book cast to one side. But yet the word of God tells us from the very start of it, there's a blessing for God's people that read this book, that understand this book, that study this book. Again, we, I don't think we've done ourselves any favours in terms of we've gone for sensationalism at times. We've been over the top with what the book of Revelation actually teaches. Got all crazy kind of stuff out of it. That's one extreme. The other extreme is we don't go near it. But we're being robbed of a blessing, and the, the enemy's done a tremendous work in that. So we want to we go through it, and we want to unpack it, not in a dry and dusty way, but we want to look at it, we want to interpret it. Only one interpretation, but we want to see the application. You know, what does this mean for us? How do we to respond to this? And, and I think it'll be a blessing for us. So we'll have a look through it and see where we go. Next slide, please. So some, some um, things to unpack just quickly, just in case you may hear these terms as I go through and I may say them and you're not quite sure what, what I'm talking about, which is fair enough. Um, and, you know, you don't have to take us all in. This is just just unpacking these little terms because when we get to the book of Revelation, there, there are generally four positions regarding the timing and fulfillment of this book. All right? The first position, you may have heard this, is a preterist position. It's from the Latin meaning past. So the preterist, one that identifies with this position, comes to the book of Revelation, and he says that all the events in the book of Revelation have already happened. They've already been fulfilled. They're in the past. There's the historical position. Um, sees Revelation as a panorama of the church from the days of John till the end of the age. There's the idealist position, views the book as not an actual record of events, but of, as a kind of allegorical age-long struggle between good and evil. And then there's a futurist position, which simply sees chapter 4 all the way to the end as yet future. Okay? Now, we don't have to expand on them too many, just to say this, that I'm going to adopt the futurist position. That's what this church holds to. That from chapter 4 on, we're going to see these events are yet future. And uh, we'll see that as we go. All right, next slide, please. Uh, Revelation one nineteen. if you have look there, look there, divides the, the book of Revelation up for us. The Word of God um, gives us the outline for what we're going to study. And simply there in verse 19, 
Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So the things which thou hast seen are going to give us chapter number one. The things which are are chapters two and three. And the the things um, which shall be hereafter, we're going to adopt the future position, which is going to be from chapter four on. Next slide. Um, so here you can see, you know, don't worry about too much about the detail here, but this is the, 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 the scroll of Revelation pulled out. And what I want you to see from this is that um, the things which will be hereafter is, is probably six-eighths of the entirety of this, this book. So we've got chapter one, the things which are, chapter two and three, uh, two, or chapter one, sorry, the things which I have seen, chapter two and three, the things which are, and then the rest of the book, the majority of the book, uh, as yet future, and we'll see that as we go along. All right, next one, please. Here's another term, the millennium. When we talk about that, we we did this last Sunday evening when we talked about the kingdom, but there are three positions regarding this, if you can move that on for me, please. First one, the premillennial view, that's what we hold to, teaches Christ will return to earth, we taught this last Sunday night, and he will establish his kingdom for a thousand years, and it is an earthly reign, a literal earthly reign, okay? So that's the position we're going to be taking, that's a premillennial view, which you'll see there. So the church age, the tribulation, the return of Christ, then the millennium, the thousand year period, that's our position. Uh, next one, uh, another view that people take is the post-millennial view. Teaches that the millennial kingdom is not a literal thousand years, but it's a golden age um, that the church will usher in by the preaching of the gospel. And um, we do not hold to that view at all. Um, so post after millennium, if you can move the slide down. So you'll see there, you have the church age and the millennium running concurrently. Then Christ returns, and then we go into eternity. Um, you know, and, and <laughs> honestly, this is the hardest view to hold because you just need to look into the world. And if that's the golden age out there, somebody needs to get a dictionary and see what golden means because it's not golden out there at all. All right, and then the next one, uh, a millennial. So this will be the other uh, popular view. A is from the Latin no, it means no millennium. And uh, it teaches there'll be no future, literal, earthly, thousand-year reign of Christ. The kingdom is only spiritual in nature. And we looked at this last week, and we looked at how in Ezekiel there's so many chapters that give uh, real detail of, of a physical temple, and, and chapter after chapter devoted to it. Um, that's a lot of wasted inspiration if it's all spiritual in nature. So we do not hold to that view in this church. And that's the amillennial view. So very similar in terms of the church age and the millennium. But basically, there's no earthly, literal, thousand-year reign. The only one that holds to the view that there is is the premillennial view, and that's what we hold to. And that does make us pretty unique within this city. Unfortunately, it does. So there's your three views on the millennium. All right, next slide, please. The rapture. Again, you hear that term. Again, three views on that. There's probably four, but we'll just break it down into three. There's a pre-tribulational rapture. And when we say the rapture, we mean the catching up, the snatching away, the departure of the church from this earth when the Lord comes back. That's what we mean when we talk about the rapture. And pre-tribulation just means it's before the tribulation period. Pre-before. So you'll see it there. We live in the church age. Uh, Christ comes for his church. And then we enter in tribulation. And then the millennium. That's a pre-tribulational view. We hold to that in this church. The mid-tribulational view, again, uh, flick on to the next slide. That'll help us. Is that Christ comes back at the middle of the tribulation period to take his church away. 
uh, and we do not hold to that view here at all. And as we get through the book of Revelation, we'll see why we don't hold to that. Then post-tribulation view, you can work that out. So let's go to the next slide. That Christ returns at the end of the tribulation to to take his his church away. Again, that's a view that is is really decreasing in popularity. And really you're dealing with the pre-tribulation, the mid-tribulation. There's one other view. We'll deal with it a little bit later on. It's called the pre-wrath view. And that kind of puts the, the rapture sort of in the last quarter of the seven years. So in between the mid and the post. We'll deal with this stuff as we go through. I just wanted you to know what we stand. So how do we get to all this? How do we get through the book of Revelation? And I have been banging on about this. But interpretation rules. That's how you get to the context. That's how you get to good understanding of Scripture. Is you have good interpretation rules. It's called hermeneutics. But it's just interpreting the Bible. And you stick to them all the way through. And, and the first rule is the golden rule. And, and that's when, when Pastor Moore said it often, when the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. Just read it as it is. Read it as it is. As you do with everything else in life. Read it as it is, unless the context tells you to read it in a different way. Take it literally. And that's the second there, the literal, historical, grammatical. So that gets us to context. We just treat the book from Genesis all the way to Revelation with the same type of mindset unless it tells us otherwise. So we get into poetry and it will reveal itself as poetry. We get into allegory and it will reveal itself as allegory. We get into parabolic language and the Lord reveals that it's parables. So we, we work in that concept. But we stay in the literal sense, the historical sense, the grammatical. What is it saying? Who is it saying to? When is it written? What, you know, context, context, context. Next one is the law of, for, oh, sorry, sorry, no, that's the next point. The law of first mention. And, and really that is just the, the principle that when a, a, a concept or word is first mentioned in the Bible, that generally, as you go through the word of God, it will stay according to that setting. So we call that, it's not always true, but it is primarily true. So we call that the law of first mention. Next one's the law of double... I said it, sorry, I should stop saying the next one. It's my fault. Uh, back, 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 back. Yeah, the law of double mention, uh, uh, double reference. So when, when the prophets wrote, we'll say this in scripture, um, they, they spoke of a, a, a local event, something that was happening um, without giving... Uh, you know, with given detail, and then without any any kind of indication, they'll change, and they'll suddenly suddenly be uh, speaking about something yet future. This is called the law of double mention. We see this a lot in in relation to the return of Christ. So, I'll give you an example. If you turn to Zechariah chapter number nine, verses nine to ten, and and we'll see an example of this. Where they can be talking about one thing in time, and then. Fast forward, if you like, and, and talk about something else. Um, talk about something more remote in terms of what they already spoke about. So Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 10 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon the colt of the foal of an ass. So, you know, here we're talking about the triumphal entry. That's what it's, it's, it's prophesying. But then we read on 
And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. His dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. So now we just jump forward completely without any, any indication there. We're jumping forward to the return of Christ. So we've got the triumphal entry of Christ, and then we know in hindsight we can look back. We call this a law of double reference. It could be talking about one thing and then move to a connecting thing that is maybe down the line yet future. Um, from the event that was originally being spoke about. Okay, you can move on now to the next slide. We have the law of recurrence. Um, so we, we see this in Genesis. When something is given, then it may come back and it may give fuller details. That, you know, the prophet or whoever is writing may expand upon this. So you see this in, in, in Genesis chapter number one. So you have the creation, but then you get back to Genesis uh, two and you go back into the creation and you have fuller detail. We call this the law of occurrence, and you'll see that through Scripture. Um, this is an important one. Obscure passages must be interpreted in the light of the plain one. This is so important. So the obscure never, never trumps the obvious. All right, and this happens a lot. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, there are many that, that that teach that you can lose your salvation, and they'll they'll point to certain passages that. On face value, you may look like that, okay? But the, 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 the reality is that those passages, that when you, when you start to get into it and put context around it, they don't actually teach what they're saying. But they pull out a little passage, and then they detect the whole doctrine of soteriology upon that obscure verse. And saying, well, this is what it says, so you can lose your salvation. And you say, well, what about all these other verses that said, nothing can separate us from the love of God. You're saved by grace through faith, it's not of yourself, it's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. You're, you know, Jesus says, you're in my hand, my hand's in the Father's hand, you're secure for an eternity. You go on and on and on. But the problem is, people take a little obscure verse, and then they want it to determine the truth of all the other verses. But good uh, interpretation methods is that obscure passages must be interpreted in light of the plain ones. The body of truth that you'll find in the Word of God. And that's a good way to keep steady and keep sure as you go. And really that leads into our last one. Compare Scripture with Scripture. Because any verse can be taken out of context and, and you can make it say what you want. You can make it sing the tune that you want. But context is key. We talked about that this morning, didn't we? John 17. So that, you know, everybody uh, needs to, you know, we should just come together that commonality overrides differences and, and John, uh, uh, Christ in his high priestly prayer in John 17 prayed for unity. And he did pray for unity, but it was in the context of John 17, 17. Unity and truth. Unity and truth. So we have to compare scripture with scripture and, and get a full sense of the revelation of the word of God. All right, next slide. So get into the book of Revelation. We're just going to have some introductory thoughts that this evening. Um, first of all, the date of authorship. Um, it's estimated by most AD 95, 96, around that. Um, you know, it's a time where Christians are being persecuted uh, by the Emperor Domitian. Um, it's a terrible time, really, for Christians, and, and this will go on, certainly, with the, the Roman rulers. And uh, John, as he writes this, is, is exiled on Patmos, um, where he has this revelation. Uh, the author, the Apostle John, um, believe it or not, but like with every other book of the Bible, seems to, as time goes on, everything comes under attack. And from the 2nd or 3rd century, 
the authorship of, of um, this book was under, was under attack and they said that it wasn't John that wrote it, that it was another man called John the Presbyter from the Church of Ephesus. But again, you know, it, 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 these stuff come, come in from out of, out of nowhere. Um, and there's no record of this, John the Presbyter. Um, this is John, the Apostle. Three times he gives his name in this book, and those that read it would understand and know who wrote it. He didn't have to explain himself. So, Let's have a, just a, a little quick look at some of the verses here uh, this evening. And again, this is just introductory. We're going to get more into it uh, next week. But first of all, let's read Revelation chapter number 1, verse 1. We'll pick out a few little points just this evening. Now, it says, first of all, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's important because I don't know about your Bible, but um, in your little introductory page of your Bible, what does it say? Give me some feedback here. What does it say on your page? It says Revelation. St. John the Divine. Mine says the Revelation of St. John. Anybody else get anything else different from that? No? Revelation of John, whatever it may be. Yeah? Okay. Oh, what a Bible he's got. <laughs> and that's what it is. That's what it is. That's what it is. And, you know, so number one, pet peeve of mine, this, is, um, this book is The Revelation. It's the book of Revelation, not Revelations, plural. But it's not the revelation of St. John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Bible introduces it. That word revelation, I'm sure you know, is from uh, the Greek apocalypsis where we get apocalypse we get apocalypse from that and it really means unveiling revealing and this is what this book is it is the unveiling the revealing of the lord jesus christ as the warrior king as he is coming to claim back and take back the earth it reveals him as the last adam the one who is entitled to take the deeds of the earth and fix everything that was ruined by the first Adam. So we have to understand that this is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ and what a revelation of glory it is. And notice it says there in the first verse, show unto his servants things which must come shortly. That word shortly in the Greek, getting into the Greek a little bit, but it, it, it's, it's worth knowing, it's from the Greek takos. It's not the Greek chronos for time. Okay. So a lot of our words come out of, out of Greek language and stuff like that. So, you know, chronology comes from the Greek chronos, and it means order of time. Takos has to do with speed. That's where we get tachometer, for any of you that drive your lorries or whatever it may be. It's to do with speed. So when it says these things will come, must come shortly, it doesn't mean shortly in time. And remember we talked about the preterist who said that all these things are fulfilled. They'll point to this and say, it says shortly, these things must happen shortly. That John, when he had this revelation of Christ and he had these prophecies given to him, they were going to happen shortly. But in the Greek, the word is not for order of time, but it's speed. It means when they happen, they happen rapidly. And we'll see that as we get on in this book says, these things must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. 
That word signified really uh, means given in signs and symbols. It should really be pronounced signified because that's what it means. And that's what we're going to see as we get through. And, and there are more signs and symbols in the book of Revelation than any other book of the Bible. And that's often why people just switch off. But what we'll find is that as we get through the book of Revelation, the majority of the time, the book of Revelation interprets those signs for us. And if it doesn't, it points us to somewhere else where we can't get the interpretation from. So it's not as much choppy waters as you may think it may be. Verse 2 says, Who bear a record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. That word there, bear record, is, is from the, the Greek marturo, where we, we get the word martyr. Now, when, when, I, when, when I say the word martyr, what do you think that, that means? What's a martyr? Someone who dies for their faith. That's the, the English for it. But actually, the, the Greek means witness. That's what it means. And the reason that it has become associated by one who dies for their faith is because of the witness of those Christians that were put to death, you read this in in Fox's Book of Martyrs, over the centuries for their faith. They were a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. So the word martyr is, uh, you'll be glad to know, you can be a martyr without dying. (laughs) Just be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you you will be uh, a a martyr here. Uh, Next verse, Revelation 1-3. And we've read a little bit about this. Blessed or happy is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in there for the time is at hand. And the book of Revelation indeed is a blessing to those that are are going to to read it. And and as we go through, I hope that it will be a a blessing. Like I said, we're we're getting just little introductory thoughts here before we, we, we get into this full steam ahead next week. Verse four. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, peace from him which is and which was and which is to come from the spirit, seven spirits which are before his throne. So we're going to, next week, Lord willing, we're going to have a look at the saviour of Revelation. After that, we're going to have a look at the seven churches of Revelation. And we'll see some great spiritual truths as we go through there. Just to say the seven spirits, seven is a number of completion, perfection, maturity. And you'll read about that in Isaiah 11 verse 2. And we'll, we'll weave that in as we go and have this revelation of Christ. Verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead. That first begotten there is from the Greek protos, prototype, first in order or position. So again, for our Jehovah's Witnesses friends that want to say Christ is a created being, they will say here he's the firstborn, first begotten, but this means first in order or rank. And this is who we're dealing with. This is Christ, the preeminent one. And this is what this is pointing us to. And you can cross-reference that in your own time with Colossians 1.18, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Verse number 6. I wanted to highlight this a little bit. And... um, pull this out because I think this is important not to, to bang a drum about Bible translations but um, this is something that's worth considering as you, as you look into Bible translations. Look at verse 6 it says and made us kings and priests unto God his father to be to him be glory and dominion forever and ever and we looked at this last Sunday night after the order of Melchizedek and we can see that repeated in, in, in Hebrews there and, that, and that's very uh, important but here's what I want you to notice so put it onto the next slide for me 
So in verse uh, 6 it says here in the KJV, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Now the KJV is taken from, from a line of text called the received text, certainly in the New Testament. And uh, I believe personally that there are two lines of text. One that the um, KJV, New King James, uh, modern English version are translated from, the received text, the majority text. And then we have what's called the critical text, which came along in you know, 19th, 20th century stuff. And really all modern versions are, are, are translated from that. And the problem is there are differences between the two. And there, there are multiple differences. And a lot of it correlates and, you know, that, that's fine. But there are differences. And the reason as a church that we preach from the KJV or others will use the, the New King James or whatever it may be is because they're from that line of text. And I believe it's safer, just safer, simply and truly. I still believe the KJV is a translation. <laughs> so, you know, don't shoot me. But that's, you know, we won't talk about that. We can talk about it. But I believe it's the safest translation. And that line of text is safe, and it's the purest line of text. And here's one of the examples that, that I want to give you. So when you read uh, this verse in Revelation 1.6 from the New King James, it says, And hath made us kings and priests to our gods, and we shall reign on the earth. KJV, made us unto our God kings and priests, we shall reign on the earth. Now we get to the New American Standard, which is from the critical text, not the received text. And it says, You have made them to be a kingdom, and priests to your God, they will reign upon the earth, ESV, and you have made them a kingdom, and priests to your God, and they shall reign on the earth. So you can see there's a difference there in those that are translated from the critical text to the received text. One of us, one of the one side tells us that uh, we will be made kings and priests unto our God. The other side says we're going to be a kingdom. We're going to be a kingdom. And, you know, well, what's the issue there? Well, well, the issue is that, that the Scripture never tells us as a church that we will be a kingdom. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. And you can, you can look through it in the New Testament and you will not find that there. James chapter 2, verse 5 says this, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to them that love him? Hebrews 12, verse 28 Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace where we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. We, we not, we, we're not a kingdom, we receive a kingdom. So again, there, there, there are differences. There are differences. There are differences. And as we study the word of God, especially in eschatology, I really do believe that the safest bet is from the text of the received text. And that's why we, we teach from it. But I just wanted to highlight that a uh, little issue there. Right, verse 7, let's move on. Behold, he cometh with clouds, every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. Every eye shall see him. We turn to Acts chapter number 1. Let's turn there, just actually. Acts chapter number 1. Acts chapter number 1, verse 9, it says, And when he had spoken uh, these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they were looking steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by him in white apparel, 
which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So the Lord, when he comes, he will return in the way that he left. And uh, the scripture in Revelation tells us here that every eye will see him. Behold, he cometh with clouds. That's the way he left. That's the way he's going to come. And every eye will see him. That's important. Because it's not just the living that will see him. It's also the dead. It's also the dead. See, where do you get that from, Pastor? Matthew. Turn to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 64. You remember this is the supernatural return of our God. Matthew 26, verse 64. Well, actually, let's read from verse 62. It's had a lot of that context. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Here Jesus answers because he's adjured, because now the high priest has gone to the legal system within Judaism, and Christ fulfilled the law. He never broke the law. That's why he answered at this point. And Jesus said unto him, verse 64, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So when the scripture tells us when the Lord returns and every eye will see him, it means every eye. It means everyone, living and dead. And you say, how is that possible? It's a supernatural return. You know, people have looked at this and said, tried to work this out and say, well, you know, it is, you know, the Christ couldn't have returned all those years ago because the technology wasn't available so that every eye could see him. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. This is the creator of the universe. And when he returns and he wants every eye to see, every eye will see. He doesn't need the technology of man to help him out and help him along. Every eye will see him, both the living and the dead. And of course we know from the prophecy of Zechariah that uh, the house of Israel will look upon him they have pierced. And they'll weep. And they'll weep at the one that they've pierced. Then verse 8, and we'll finish this up here tonight. And again, we're not really preaching too much tonight. We will be a little bit more next week. But we're going to finish this up with this thought where Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and was and which is to come, the Almighty. Now, as we think about this, the beginning and the end, we think about our King and we think about who he is, his character, his qualities, his attributes, that he is the omnipotent one. That he is the omnipresent one, the all-knowing, the all-present one, the all-powerful one. And where we have Alpha and Omega, that points us to the all-knowing one. Because Alpha and Omega are the first and the last letters in the Greek alphabet. And what is the alphabet? The alphabet is what we use to contain all knowledge. All knowledge. It's made up of letters. How do we preserve our knowledge? We, We write it down. How do we speak it? We use the phonetic alphabet to to form those words. 
So when Christ says he is the Alpha and the Omega, he's saying he is all knowledge. He's all knowledge. He's the beginning and the end. What's that mean? He's all present. He's the start, he's the finish. He's there and he's there. Which was and is and is to come the Almighty, the all-powerful one. And this is the Christ that is going to be revealed through the book of Revelation. All-powerful, all-knowing. He's going to be the one, and we're going to see this next week, who is revealed as, as not the meek and mild and, and, and you know, wouldn't say Buddha a goose, Jesus has been portrayed. But he's coming back as king. He's coming back as king. And he will be revealed in all his glory when he comes again. So what we'll do is we'll leave it there this week. Like I said, this is just introductory. Next week, we're going to unpack it. We're going to see the saviour of Revelation and what a saviour he is. And as we get through this, we'll see the seven churches of Revelation and we'll see that how the Lord has a word for us today. And then we're going to get further in as we go on and we're going to see what's to come. And when we see what's to come, we as a people, as God's people, should be thrilled because we will not face that wrath to come. Because we've been saved, we've been set apart, and part of that is the body of Christ. We've been spared from what's going to be poured out from Revelation chapter 4 on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word this evening. Lord, I do appreciate that it's just introductory thoughts this evening, but I do ask, Lord, that you prepare our hearts as we go on through this, that it wouldn't be a dry and dusty subject, but it would be a thrilling one. Lord, that we would see you in your glory and just be amazed that you would save us, that you would have us serve you, that you would uh, make us heirs with you, Lord. Help us to see as we look at the seven churches that there are spiritual conditions that can set into any church and any age. And Lord, help us to be aware of these things and to guard ourselves from these things and to not leave our first love as we're so often prone to do. But Lord, as we get further into this amazing book, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that you have indeed spared us from the wrath to come. And, and, and Lord, it's, it's a sobering thought to think about your wrath poured out upon this earth. And Lord, I pray that that would help us, that would spur us on in our evangelism as we seek to share you with others so that they might be saved and spared from the wrath to come. Lord, we want to be a people of the book from Genesis to Revelation, but Lord, more than that, we want to take what we learn and we want to apply it and we want to live it out in our lives. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to not leave it as just head knowledge, but let it penetrate our hearts. Even those thoughts this evening, that you are indeed Alpha and Omega, that you are all knowledge, that you are all power, that you are all present. And Lord, as we rejoice in that, we remember that you are with us always. What more do we need than you? So Lord, I pray you would help us in our studies as we go on. And that we might take it and apply it. Glorify you. In Jesus' name. Amen.